Well, good to see you this morning. If you would, let's open our Bibles to 1 Timothy. It's a little over halfway through your New Testament. Uh, it's uh, towards the back. And if you would open to that book, we're going to begin a new series this morning. And so out of respect for God's Word, just stand with me as we read together the opening verses of this letter that Paul writes to a young man he is mentoring for ministry. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, as we come to worship you this day, may we do so not only with our hearts, but through a proper response to your word as you speak to us in your holy scriptures. For it's in Christ's name that we ask it. Amen. Well, according to the Gregorian calendar that we've been using since the 1500s, we start a new year this morning. And so I thought it would be a good time for us to start a new series. I mean, we've just completed a study through Colossians and Philemon regarding the sufficiency of Christ in all things. So I thought it might be helpful to understand exactly how does that apply to us. You know, we live in a world that wants everything as fast as possible. That's why we have fast food restaurants, fast cars, fast phones that connect us to the internet as quickly as possible. We went to Dollywood for a couple of days this past week, an idea that unfortunately thousands of others had in mind as well. And if you did not want to wait in line for two to three hours to ride a coaster, you had to purchase a fast pass that would allow you to move quickly to the front of the line. And that's what everybody there wanted. Everybody. We want what we want, and we want it now. And that's how some approach the Christian life. <laughs> Sometimes people are are trying to grow as fast as they can in Christ before they even know Christ. You know, we want to read through the Bible as quickly as we can rather than to study it and to know it and apply it and to live it. And we, we, we think that because we're doing these things, somehow or another that makes us terrific Christians. But what we think we are, we are not. But what we think, we are. Do you follow that? In other words, we can develop too high an opinion of ourselves based on what we, we think we're doing. <laughs> and that's why Paul writes in Romans 12, you need to, to think with sober judgment. Because the truth is, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. How we think on the inside will direct how we live on the outside. That's why Paul said to the Philippian church, you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say you are to work for your salvation. But he's saying that, that what the Lord is working in you needs to come out of you. So to become a true child in the faith, as Paul calls Timothy here, what we think, what we think 
down deep in our hearts, that which directs our life, it truly matters. Matter of fact, this is the reason we have Bibles. The Lord says, this is who you are in Christ. Therefore, this is how you ought to live for Christ. Now, before we get into the text, let me just give you a little background. I, I, I hope this is helpful to you. Uh, we're talking about an area here called Asia Minor. Uh, during the Persian conquest, you remember where we're at here? Uh, Persian conquest is Esther, uh, Nehemiah, about 500 B.C., they took this area, this Asia Minor area, and they divided it into states. After the Persians, Alexander the Great comes in and Hellenizes this area around 330 B.C. Then the Romans come in and they conquer the known world in the first century. And they turn this place, Asia Minor, it's a big area. Okay, It's what connects Europe to Asia. The Romans turned this into a crossroads for trade routes. And so by the time you get to Paul's day, this is a booming area. As a matter of fact, it was so successful, as you go on through history, you get to 285 A.D., Diocletian split it in half. He takes the Roman Empire and splits it in half. You have the western half that's going to look to Rome for their leadership. And the eastern half, known as the Byzantine Empire, is going to look to a place that Constantine, later in the 300 ADs, he's going to take the city uh, Byzantium and is going to rename it after himself. He's going to call it Constantinople. And so that whole eastern part of the Roman Empire is going to now look to Constantinople, and that's going to last for 1,600 years. That's going to go from the 300 A.D. all the way up to 1922. Why is that? It's an important track of land. It's connecting all of Europe to all of Asia. And so when the Ottoman Empire comes in to rule this area, uh, Ottoman is um, uh, it's, it's taken from a... a an Arabic name for the, the guy that kind of established this empire in the 13, uh, 13th century. It, um, it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a Turkish word for this Arabic name. And so this guy's going to come in, and, and this empire is going to reach its peak under Suleiman the Magnificent. And I only mention that because uh, you remember the walls around Jerusalem, how Babylon went in and tore them all down in 586 B.C. And it's Nehemiah who goes back in 445 B.C. and he rebuilds those walls. Well, the Romans will tear the walls that Nehemiah built. They will tear down the walls of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And they will remain down until Suleiman the Magnificent goes in and rebuilds them around, four, around 1540 A.D. Now, I mention that because if you go over there in the Holy Land, uh, there is some confusion because the walls around Jerusalem in Christ's day are not in exactly the same place that the walls are today, and that is the reason. Well, the Ottoman Empire begins to decline during the Crimean War, the, the war that Russia had with not only the Ottomans but with France and with other countries. This is in the 1800s. And after World War I in 19... 14 to 1917, 1918, um, the, this area is going to declare itself to be the Republic of Turkey. 
This is in, uh, around 1922. And Constantinople is going to be renamed Istanbul. So this is the region we're talking about this morning. We're primarily dealing with the western part of what is today Turkey. Now let's go back to the first century. Do you see the map? That uh, Do we have the map up here? Do you, uh, do you see Rome there in that western part of the Roman Empire? And you see Constantinople where that is, uh, that's going to be the capital of the eastern uh, empire. And if you go southwest of Constantinople, you find the city of Ephesus. That's where Timothy's going to be. If you go due east of Ephesus, that's going left to right on this map, away from all the big cities, there was a little town called Lystra. This is where a young boy named Timothy was born to immigrant parents. He was a little different because his father was a Greek and his mother was Jewish. And as the son of a mixed couple in a small town, he's a bit of an outcast. Being an uncircumcised Greek, he's not accepted among some of the Jews. And having a Jewish mother, a lot of the Greeks didn't fully accept him either. And then this guy named Paul came to his town, to his town. And the guy's Jewish, but he's also a Roman citizen. And he keeps talking about the meaning and purpose of life that he has discovered through his encounter with Jesus Christ. And he confirmed that his message, that this encounter was true by miraculously healing a crippled man. No one could do that except he who has divine power. And so the religious community, they didn't like that very well and they, they began trying to stone him. And what really impressed Timothy is that Paul would not back down. He wouldn't back down. He stood firm. And Timothy realizes this guy is not like the other religious teachers. He's not like the secular philosophers. There's something real about him. He's genuine. Now, Timothy's mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois had, had brought him up teaching him the Old Testament scriptures. And now this guy, is explaining how all those Old Testament pictures and prophecies were, were not just pointing to Christ, they were fulfilled by Christ. And Timothy begins to distinguish himself in Lystra as a student of the word. And so a year later, after Paul goes through his town and he meets him and he truly impresses Timothy, a year later, Paul comes back. And as he's passing through again, he is impressed with Timothy and invites him to join him on his second missionary journey. Come, Timothy, come, learn. Let me see that your faith is real. And Timothy proves himself, proves himself to Paul. And Paul has started several new congregations throughout that region. And so he began to, to leave Timothy here and leave Timothy there at this church and that church to ground them in truth. And that's why oftentimes when you're reading through your New Testament and you see letters from Paul, you see Timothy's name right alongside his. And after around nine years together, nine years, this is when Paul is falsely accused of bringing a Gentile into the temple area there in Jerusalem. 
uh, the area reserved only for Jews. Now, it was a lie. It was a false accusation. It wasn't true. But I tell you, it caused such a ruckus that the Romans had to arrest Paul to keep him from being beaten to death, and they charged him with violating the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And they held him in prison for four years. And during that time, Timothy stays with Paul. He learns from him. He studies the scriptures with him. He is serving Paul and proving himself to be trustworthy. And now that Paul is released from prison, he goes back to the churches that he started. And he discovered that some of them had grown numerically, but there were major problems internally. And the reason is, is because some of the guys there were still spiritually immature, but they desired to have past passes to become leaders. They didn't take time to be well-grounded in Scripture. And it caused major problems. Man, did they get caught up in a bunch of nonsense. Foolish myths, genealogies, speculations. And yet Paul, he doesn't feel like that he can spend his time there in Ephesus to straighten this kind of stuff out. And so he leaves Timothy in Ephesus. This young man that he has mentored to deal with these type of issues, he knows that he can trust him. And so he leaves Timothy there as he moves west into Macedonia. Macedonia is that area north of Greece. And he assigns Timothy to stay in Ephesus. But knowing how difficult, how difficult this is going to be for, for a young man about 35 years old to straighten out a church as significant as the one that was there in Ephesus with the strong-willed nature of these immature Christians. Paul writes to him, giving him instructions and encouragement. And during this same time, you've got to remember, Nero is turning up the heat in his attempt to blame Christians for what he had done. Nero, it is believed, set fire to an area of Rome that he wanted to rebuild to his own liking, but he needed to blame somebody else for doing it. So he's blaming the Christians for doing it. And so he's looking for Christian leaders. And that is why... There are some that were very close to Paul, like Demas, who will desert him. Say, no, 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 we're, we're, we're not going to die for this. But that was not true of Timothy. Paul will be arrested again by Nero. He'll be put to death by Nero. But before that happens, the Holy Spirit through Paul will write to Timothy once again. And that's why you have the book of 2 Timothy. And so these two epistles are among the last instructions that the Lord will give to his church before canonizing New Testament scriptures prior to Christ's second coming, just as he had canonized Old Testament scriptures years and years prior to Christ's first coming in Bethlehem. Now, with that as background, why would Paul, why would Paul, who knows Timothy well, I mean, they've been together about 13 years at this point, why would he identify himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope? Why open the letter with that? Well, who is Paul? And what is an apostle? You know, we first meet Paul in Scripture when he is Saul of Tarsus. 
Um, Tarsus is a Roman city in uh, Cilicia. That's uh, a part of Turkey. As a matter of fact, I said if you go from Ephesus, you go east, you run into Lystra. If you continue to go east and just slightly south, you run into Tarsus. And when you make the turn around the Mediterranean Sea there, you go south to Jerusalem. And, and on your way, there is a place called Damascus. Well, for a Jew to be a Roman citizen, it was not uncommon to have two names. Saul is his Hebrew name. He is from Tarsus. That's his hometown. However, at the age of five, Saul's family, these are fervent Jewish nationalists. They moved their family to the sacred and holy city of Jerusalem. Now, Aramaic, which is a derivative of Hebrew, would have been the primary language spoken in Saul's home as he's growing up. But Saul goes on to learn Greek and Latin and be very proficient in it. He's a smart guy. And by age 13, his family sends him to a private school. They send him to the school of the famous rabbi Gamaliel. And there he becomes a master in Jewish history. Man, he learns the Psalms and he reads the prophets and he becomes an Old Testament scholar. He graduates a lawyer. He's a proud Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin, he told the Philippians. He had his eye, no doubt, on becoming a member of the Jews' highest council. That's the Sanhedrin. It's believed by, by many that Saul was the one present there in Acts 7 when they were stoning Stephen to death because Dr. Luke tells us that the executioners laid their garments at the feet of a guy named Saul. And it's believed that he is the one who was there overseeing that stoning. And the reason they believe that is because after Stephen's stoning, Great persecution breaks out against the church according to Acts 8. And who's at the center of that? Saul. Saul of Tarsus. He's a religious terrorist at this point. He's going into the homes of Christians and arresting them and putting them in prison. And as a matter of fact, he's on his way to arrest and to extradite more Christians to Jerusalem in Acts 9 when Christ confronts him and commissions him. This Jew with an exceptional education, who is also a Roman citizen, is commissioned by Christ to take the gospel to Gentiles and to verify what he has now become an eyewitness to, that Christ is risen. All of that Old Testament that he studied under Gamaliel, it now makes sense to him as he sees what he had learned was confirmed by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so now it is his calling in life to take that message, what he knows to be true, to the Gentiles whom he once despised. And Saul will continue to use that name, Saul, until you get to Acts 13, when at Cyprus, a Roman proconsul, a guy by the name of Sergius Paulus, has become a Christian. And Saul now begins using his Roman name, Paul, like Sergius Paulus. Why? Some believe it's because he wanted to use that as a means for opening the door to the Gentiles, as Christ commissioned him to do. Others have speculated that, that he simply liked his Roman name. What would he like about the name Paul? It means 
small. He's no longer a self-inflated Pharisee. But as John the Baptist once said of Christ, he must increase and I must decrease. For whatever reason, Paul uses his Roman name as he recognizes his calling as an apostle of Christ to the Gentiles. Now, this word apostle means messenger. But Paul's not just any messenger. You say, what what, what do you mean by that? Well, if you turn back into the Gospels, Dr. Luke chapter 6 records that Christ has a large number of disciples who are following him. They're watching him. They're learning from him. But from that sizable group of disciples, he chooses 12 to be his apostles. His apostles. Who will serve as the foundation of the church as he is the cornerstone. Ephesians 2.20. Now there are those today who try to call themselves apostles. But by taking to themselves that title doesn't mean that they have biblical authority. Not the authority that Christ gave to these 12 plus Paul. For one thing, that unique group that Christ calls his apostles had to be, there were several qualifications. You see this when they go to replace Judas with Matthias. In Acts 1, they had to be eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection. They had to be eyewitnesses. We don't have anyone today who is an eyewitness. Um, They had to be explicitly chosen by the Holy Spirit, as Paul explains in in Galatians 1. Thirdly, they had to be given the ability to perform signs and miracles. The same kind of signs and miracles that Christ had done, confirming this gospel message that they proclaimed was indeed from Christ. That they were indeed the foundation of the church. We see this in 2 Corinthians 12. So an apostle was one who was sent. That's an apostle. But there were specific ones chosen by Christ to whom he had promised back when we were going through the Gospel of John. Remember that? John 14. Again in John 16. He said, I will leave, but I will send to you the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, who will come and reveal all truth to you. It is through you that we're going to receive the New Testament Gospels and the Epistles and the Book of Revelation that will be the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And Paul, according to 1 Corinthians 15, was extremely humbled to be included in that group by Christ. Others in that day served as ambassadors of Christ, like Barnabas and Titus and Epaphroditus. And, you know, they're missionaries of the gospel and they're called apostles because they are sent. But they were without the apostolic authority that Christ confirmed upon these 12 plus Paul by miraculous power. They're not able to do the healings and, and provide the signs that through them the Lord was providing Theonustos, God-breathed words of Scripture. They couldn't do that. His apostles is a very limited group to whom Christ made that promise, and through them the Holy Spirit would give us those New Testament Scriptures. Now, as the head of the church, Christ adds Paul. Acts 9, to that apostleship. So well, how, how do you know that? How, how do you know for sure that Paul was included by Christ in that commissioning in Acts 9? 
Well, if you read in 2 Peter 3, Peter says, Paul wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him. Given to him. As he does in all his letters. Things hard to understand, which some twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. Peter recognized that Paul had been chosen by Christ to be among that unique and limited group of apostles through whom Christ would give us Theonustos, his word. So Paul identifies himself as an apostle. Not because he's trying to lord it over anybody. He's not boasting about this fact. He's simply identifying his purpose. I am an apostle of Christ. And notice what he says about this. Commanded by the Lord. This is not Paul's decision. It was a decision that was made for him. And I got to thinking about this. The same thing is true of us, is it not? Is this not true of us? If you are a Christian this morning, it is not because you're smarter or better than others. As a matter of fact, if you read in, in your Bible in Ephesians 2, you find that we were spiritually dead like the rest of mankind. And dead people don't make good decisions. Dead people don't make decisions for Christ. We are who we are by the grace of God. And he goes on to explain, you know, we are children of wrath like the rest of, of mankind. But then you get to verse 4. What's the key word there? But. Here's all these things that are true of you. You are spiritually dead. You are a child of wrath. You are a child of disobedience. But. But what? The Lord being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's by God's grace, not by your religion, not by your works, not by the foolishness of your great learning. So when we are faithful in our worship, when we're faithful in our giving and in our serving and in our living, that's not initiated by our decision. It's not. It's the result of the divine work of the Lord in our lives. We are working out our salvation, that which he is working in us. We do what we do because the Lord commanded us. He commanded us. And he is our Lord. He is our Savior. In being such, we respond as Paul responded. I mean, Paul's life is not about Paul. This is one of the biggest mistakes that seeker-sensitive churches make, the big box churches that, that try to appeal to the masses um, by, by human means. They try to make the church relative. Relative. How can you get any more relative than a person's soul for eternity? But they, they, they want to, to try to provide self-help programs that will meet your needs and to get you to come they'll entertain you with their music and they'll entertain you with their messages but let me ask you this if if it is the gospel the holy spirit uses to bring dead people to life what hope does anyone have 
who is not sitting under the teaching of God's word. Paul says, this is who I am. This is why I'm here. I'm an apostle of Christ by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. This is who I am. And here's who I'm writing to. I'm writing to my friend Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, though Paul is writing to Timothy, this letter is going to be read to the churches because the theonoustos, the God-breathed instructions, are meant for all who are in Christ. And so he wants the church to know that Timothy is a true child in the faith. What makes him a true child? What is it? Well, he believes the truth about the Lord, <laughs> believes the truth about Christ, believes the truth about man, believes the truth about man's redemption. He believes the truth. That's what makes him a true child. And because that he is committed to the truth, this is the reason that Paul is going to leave him in Ephesus. That's what that church needed. That church was off into all directions, according to verse 4, dealing with myths. Plato used this word myths when speaking about the legends and fables of Greek mythology. That's what they we're talking about here. Mythology has gotten into the church. And these guys, verse 7, desire to be teachers of the law. And yet they are, are drawing stories out of Things like the books of Jubilees, 125 B.C. Writings that would speculate about biographies, would take names out of the list of genealogies and would embellish the stories in order to support the indestructibility of Israel. And the law, to bring Judaism and legalism back into the church, and what they're doing is they're stirring up arguments within the church. And it's leading to division. We'll talk more about this in future weeks. But Timothy knew better than to mix mythology with the truth. He knew better than to engage in speculation about that which the Lord had not clearly revealed in his word. Teaching truth is what leads to the stewardship of our faith, according to verse 5. So Paul says, look, here's my true child in the faith. He's got a true understanding of the law, verse 9. The purpose for why the law was given and how it was to be applied and how it was to be viewed by the church. These are all lessons that Timothy learned from Paul in those nine years that he was being mentored by him and in the four years that he spent studying with him when when. Uh, Paul was in prison under house arrest in Rome. Paul was an Old Testament scholar in the law. He knew it. He understood it. And he had mentored Timothy for such a moment as this. And so he's going to leave him there in Ephesus to straighten out that church. He's got to straighten out those people thinking. You've got to get your mind right, as Strother Martin would say. You will never be a true child in the faith if your mind is filled with nonsense. This is the reason behind our expository teaching and preaching here. This is the whole reason we go verse by verse, just seeking to rightly handle the theonustos words by which the Holy Spirit brings about new life 
and accomplishes the Lord's will in our life. And this word is profitable, as Paul will point out to Timothy. It's profitable for teaching and for reproof and for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God, a true child in the faith, may be complete and equipped for every good work. And then he closes this opening address with grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. Grace is the basis for our salvation. Mercy is the sympathy we continually need. Do we not? And peace. Peace is the tranquility we experience as a result of God's mercy and grace. I can't prove this. But according to tradition, as recorded by the historians, Timothy, 35 years after this, after this letter is written to him, 35 years later, he is killed in Ephesus. 97 AD. Why? He was opposing the vile perverseness of idolatry surrounding the cult of Diana. And he would not compromise the truth. Why? The answer to that is significant. Because you know where we're headed? We are headed toward a future whereby you and I and our church is going to be accused of hate speech. And we are going to see that what you give to the Lord out of your love for him, that his word might continue to be um, proclaimed and manifested, it's no longer going to be tax deductible. And to add to that, this property where we gather to worship is no longer going to be tax exempt. Unless, the only way we can avoid that is if we acquiesce to the cultural pressures that will be applied by the government. So the question is, what will your response be? Do you give as a tax deduction? Do you give to the Lord? Will you stand firm? Will you do what Timothy did? Timothy responded as a true child in the faith, born again of the grace of God. By the mercies of God, he knew the peace of God in Christ. If that is true of us, like Timothy, we'll be found faithful to the end. And so we're going to start today and move forward through 2023 preparing to be true children in the faith. True children. If you have any questions about that, if you're interested in joining us in doing that and you're not yet a member, you're not really, haven't taken your stand and said, here I am, Lord, use me, send me, then uh, you can go to the Connect table. Somebody would be glad to help you over there, or you can come and see me. I'll be in the office all this week, and we'll meet together in my study. I'll be glad to answer your questions. Stand with me as we pray.
Lord, it is not our desire this morning to make New Year's resolutions that we often break by the end of the month. But it is our desire to make a commitment to be true children in the faith. To put our hand to the plow. Committing not just to read your word, but to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. To not just come to worship each Sunday, but to truly worship you each Sunday in spirit and in truth. To not just claim to be Christians, but to, like Timothy, be trustworthy. Trustworthy stewards of your word, faithful to the end, that we might hear as he heard, well done, well done, my good and faithful servant. This, Lord, is our prayer for this church and for these wonderful people who gather here this morning. This is our prayer for 2023. In Christ's name, amen.